Okay, good evening, KB family. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Sarah. And my family and I have called this church a home for almost two and a half years. Um, and the, usually the, the happy bumblebee butterfly that is my daughter is not here today because she has started nursery and keeps catching bugs after bugs. Not COVID. I'm not, I don't have COVID. But I am a little not feeling well, so I'm trying to maintain some distance, <laughs> respectfully. And if after service I have my mask on and I seem hesitant to talk to you, it's not because I don't like you. <laughs> if I haven't met you yet, I, that remains to be seen. But um, and, <laughs> uh, it is, I, I'm trying to spare you um, right, uh, the passing on of germs. So um, as a church, we have been going through the book. Rachel really likes that. Okay, we've been going through the book of Genesis starting from the very beginning. Nice. And so when I was going through seminary, I would hear, you know, would-be pastors in seminary and say, I can't wait to preach a sermon on this or that passage. In the uh, watery, catastrophic event that is the story of the flood was probably on the bottom of that list. <laughs> but that's the story we're looking at today. So in the past weeks, I'm sorry, Jesse, so anyway, I can not pop the mic, but okay. I, I was like, okay, very good. I have appreciated how the preachers have tried to guard against the ways gen Genesis has often been abused and politicized. And our preachers has, have emphasized instead that what we're trying to take away from the early chapters of Genesis is not a scientific or historical reading um, of, of the beginning of the earth. Instead, we're trying to take away the theological questions, meaning, what does this story tell us about God, about what it means to be human persons created in this world in relation to this God? And that's the posture I want us to continue in as we press into the story of Genesis. Now, let me begin with a couple practical things as we read our text. So instead of subjecting you to three and a half chapters of many repeated words and sentences, I have instead chosen the lilting voice of Phil Day to, to, read, to read a handful of verses that will probably give you a good summary of the story of the flood. So two, for the sake of time, random things that might interest you in this passage, such as the Nephilim, for those of you that are aware enough of that chapter to know that word, those will not be covered, covered today, in, today um, in the sermon. Oh, boom. But you're invited to Pub Church Fridays at 1 p.m. to discuss such things in depth with the theology and Bible-loving regulars there. Three, I invite you to approach this text anew, perhaps leaving at the door baggage you might have with the Noah story. Let me name some. One, Noah might represent a pietistic goody-two-shoe Sunday school story that makes some of us roll our eyes at, it, at its seeming message, be exceptionally good, and God won't be furious at you. I think there's actually more than such a reading. Two, the story of the flood might be one that makes many of us cringe because the anger and actions of God in this story seem to match too much of the critique that our non-Christian friends and family have about Christianity. If either of these two match the baggage you carry as you approach this story, Noah's story, 
I invite you to perhaps lift up those things to the Holy Spirit as we continue to hear the word. So with that, Phil, would you come and read? Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then picking up at verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. Verse 17, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. I had to resist the urge to break into song there. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. Skip into verse 17. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. And on the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the tenth month, and on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After forty days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there were water all over the surface of the earth. 
So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that's with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out, together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Thank you, Phil. That was long. I saw several of you raising your eyebrows at me. <laughs> like, we can wiggle the eyebrows. <laughs> we can uh, stay awake as, as we continue. So, um, let, us, let me remind us where we've been so far and also take us through how the Genesis story might have stuck out 
to its earliest listeners. In Genesis 1, we hear about a God who creates out of nothing because he wants to provide a good and beautiful world with people in his image. To the Hebrews listening to this description, they would have heard a challenge to rival narratives about creation in the version of other um, religions because the creation stories in other Mesopotamian traditions said that the world was created out of a bloody battle between the gods and that the humans were formed to be their slaves. You hear none of that in Genesis. It's not violence, but love that, create, that motivates God to create. It's not slavery, but care of the garden and being taken care of in the garden that humanity is created for. In Genesis 2, we learn about humankind being created for community, for relationship with each other and with God. And in that passage, marriage, a covenantal, monogamous, lifelong relationship depicted in Adam and Eve, marriage is affirmed, and against many patriarchal norms, where, for example, wives were often taken into a husband's home, essentially as property or slaves, the man is to leave his family and join his wife. In Genesis 3 through 5, we learn about the fall, the choice to choose something other than God, and the downward spiral humankind takes as Cain kills Abel, and then Cain's descendant, Lamech, kills a man out of vengeance and boasts about it. He's also the first person depicted to have two wives, whose names in Hebrew mean shadow and ornament. And then Genesis 6 brings us towards the low point of that spiral. In verse 2, it says that the sons of God took any, uh, married several daughters, any of the daughters and men that they chose. So you're actually seeing the limits more and more transgressed. There are no limits in the grabbing of humans as property, even as sexual objects. And God's heart is grieved as the violence of Cain and Lamech continue to fill the earth. I say all this, recounting, so that we can be clear that... When Genesis depicts a God who is grieved enough to send a flood to cleanse the earth, it's not because he's mad that people aren't praying enough or being pure enough. It's how this affects this, our relationships to each other. As Rachel and Jesse preached weeks ago, our relationship with God impacts our relationship with people. Biblically informed theologians have, inf have affirmed that in the Hebrew world, there is no explanation of evil. It's, to use a mathematical term, a surge, something that you can't explain why it's there. It shouldn't be there. It makes us go, what? Why is that there? I see you, Joel. Um, <laughs> sin is a parasite feeding on and destroying what was meant for good. Right? And what we see in Genesis, though, is a description of what sin does. It is self-centered gain, hatred, and violence evil which degrades women, people, communities. That has filled this earth. God's regret is his lament that his good creation is not acting as it should be. It's the lament of a parent who loves their children and is horrified to see that they are destroying their siblings. Let me tell a story. Uh, when I met Raquel, I was 27 and she was 14. I was single, not married, and she was the mom of a not yet two-year-old. I grew up in the northeast of the U.S. and was a university student ministry, and our team had brought students to work with NGOs who served internally displaced persons and former child soldiers. Raquel was such a former child soldier in northern Uganda. Her village had been attacked by Joseph Kony's Lord's Resistance Army, 
and children eight to 10 years old were told while being given a military-grade weapon, kill your parents or we'll kill you. The ones that were left were those that had committed patricide and matricide, cut off from family, and now brainwashed, forced laborers that wreaked havoc and locust-like devastation onto their homeland. Girls like Raquel often became child brides to commanders, and they would bear children, sometimes two or three. And in the middle of the night, these young mothers would run away into the bush, carrying with them their little ones. When these child mothers returned to villages, they were often targets of vengeance, and they were often blamed for the murder and loss of many villagers. Without a legal male guardian, and often with no money or trade skills, they were vulnerable to attack, murder, starvation, prostitution, and you would never know all this about Raquel meeting her. She was shy, soft-spoken. She taught me songs in Acholi. I can almost forget the, the pain of her past, save the occasional bullet or machete scar that would peek out beneath her long skirt. Raquel continues to stand out to me as a symbol of human life, scarred, marred by sin. And in her body is the story of a victim forced against her will to endure all kinds of subjugation and horror. And in her body is also the story of those who became complicit in systems of evil, violence, and oppression in voluntary and voluntary ways. I don't know about you, but that kind of evil and violence, I want that cycle to stop. When I read about God being grieved and that he regretted that he made humankind, I think about Raquel, about the way she was both a victim and participant in a broken world. Sin, as Jesse preached weeks ago, is a mysterious force that wants to enslave us. And this sin draws us into a web of destruction, violence, and despair. Joseph Coney and that rebel army might be far away, but for many of us, the reality of a broken world is much closer to home. The pandemic has exposed the brokenness of our systems and is showing us its impact on populations that were already underserved. Our world suffers from human selfishness that consumes without regard for the environment and the climate, which endangers animals and the most vulnerable among human populations. Our news contains stories of violence and irresponsibility every day. And for many of you at the university, I have heard about your heartache in hearing about the violence suffered by those you love, particularly women. What I often hear uttered by the cries of those who witness, witness such violence is this, God, why don't you do something? The story of Noah is God doing something because he can't stand it either. He wants things to start anew, afresh. Many other cultures had a story of a flood all across the world. Other Mesopotamian stories would conflate the story of creation and the story of the flood and say that the gods sent the waters because there were too many people or because there wasn't enough food to share. But Genesis doesn't do that. It's not overpopulation, but the evil that comes from the human heart that precipitates the sending of the flood. And against problematic past attitudes Christians have had towards the environment, we see that God tells Noah to bring animals, both the ones that are helpful for survival, like livestock, and the ones that are not, like wild creatures, onto the ark. 
How he managed to get lions or anaconda snakes onto the ark, I do not know. But the point in this detail is not to conjecture about how he could do all that. The point in the inclusion of all these animals helps us understand that God cares about creation, and we should too. So God tells Noah, build an ark, a giant boat, the size of the largest football stadium you can possibly imagine. And friends, let me tell you, this is not my idea of a good rescue plan. This boat would have taken a long time to build, not days, not weeks, but likely years. And even with his sons and daughters helping him, the timber, the food for all the living things. I want us to think about this. Noah, in the midst of a violent community, hears God say, build an ark because a flood is coming. And and he builds it. So he's out there building this giant boat. Every time someone asks him what he's doing, why he's doing it, he's going to have to say why. Scripture says that Noah is righteous, and while we can say that that's because he was blameless, because he had never done anything wrong, and that's why God picked him, details about Noah's life after the flood, as well as the testimony of Scripture, which says no one is righteous before God on their own terms, those tell us to reconsider. There's a pattern in Scripture of God freely choosing people before they did anything to deserve it. Abram was a moon worship in Ur before God approached him, and Adam and Eve did nothing to merit being created and loved. Noah's righteousness might have more to do with the reality that when God said, I choose you to rescue, Noah believed him. A righteous person in Old Testament terms, in Hebrew Bible terms, cares about their neighbor. He would have cared about his neighbors, his extended family. In building his ark and living differently, he is saying, judgment is coming, and we need rescue. And God has told me that he will rescue in a specific way. Now, again, hear me. I don't think this would be my ideal way to advertise God's rescue plan. I might have used, I don't know, neon signs, flares, or something else. Um, But this, (laughs) this meant persistently trusting that what God said was true, years before rain comes, or a year before rain comes, that there is a judgment against evil in humanity and that God would be good to rescue. It would also mean saying, hey neighbor, you and I, we, we need rescue. Our modern enlightened sensibilities would be so offended. Do you think you could have done it? Weeks, months, a year, years of uncomfortable conversations, and yet somewhere in Noah's example, we, especially those of us identify as Christian, on the other side of the flood, we are challenged by this story because Noah's life's choices and leaning into God's rescue shows in the small, everyday, and even laughable choices that he makes. In building the ark, he is preaching to his neighbors, and the heartbreaking thing is that no one but his children listen. And then comes the rain, after they have boarded and covered the ark. Noah has left the door open and God closes the door. Perhaps even at the last moment, there could have been even more in the boat with him. And water pounds against the timber. Perhaps it drowns out the sounds of fists pounding at the sides of the boat. And whether 
the waters rose over the entire earth or over Noah's known world. The important part of the story is that the created world of Genesis 1 is being washed away, except for the humans and animals that are on this boat. We're in Scotland, so we're going to talk about mountains, <laughs> and in particular about getting stuck or lost on a mountain. Right? We can look at the story of the flood and say, seriously, what kind of rescue plan is that? But those are, that are stuck on the mountain and have no way of getting back down, which would be you and me, according to the scriptures, we don't get to say how the rescue should go. Like, you're stuck on the mountain for a reason. Right? We need to be willing to receive the rescue when it comes. Um, so, you know, when I read chapter 8, and I thought about waiting, especially during this pandemic, no one thought it'd be 40 days, but it turned into many more months of waiting for the water to recede, sending out birds, nothing, and then an olive branch. Waiting, cramped, grateful to be alive, but exhausted. When I talk to people about this pandemic and the many lockdowns, or those among us that have been waiting for a relief after many false starts or unmet hopes, this image resonates. After a year of drifting, Noah comes out. And he sacrifices the animals that likely would have at least provided some kind of wool or milk. Which should remind us of Abel, who in the sacrifice of the firstborn of his flock was saying, I trust you with my best, because the firstborn livestock were often the strongest and used for creating more flock. Noah trusts God with his best. And God responds with kindness and a promise. In short, it's not, thank you that you didn't kill me with all the others. It's, thank you for rescuing me, for being trustworthy with my life. And I'm going to trust you to be trustworthy with my life in the future. When I think about the drifting over rocky waters that must have been Noah's reality in the dark, I think about a time in my life in my late 20s when everything had gone wrong. A romantic relationship had soured and my friendships had imploded. Ministry and work were impossibly hard and family health problems started to arise, but the insomnia was the worst. I probably slept an hour a night for about half a year. I sought help, both, both medical and spiritual, but that season was like a long waiting in darkness because the most unnerving part was the seeming silence of God. And there were times where his voice would break through, but the darkness and exhaustion of that insomnia was ever-pressing. Sometimes as friends prayed for me, I had the quiet sense of the Lord holding me and rocking me as like a parent with a baby. I didn't want to be rocked. I want to get back to normal. Right? In a season that I still don't fully understand, what I, what I do know is that who I thought I was, my strength, my ability to fix things that had been my role, my family, and my community, my perception of myself as that person, that was broken. I had to surrender to this God. And I emerged with a limp as the Lord was doing surgery on me, and as the sleep started to return, I found that I was different. One day, many months later in the summer that followed, I found myself in worship on Sunday, praising God, but not because of what he had done for me, but just because of who he is. I was surrendering to this God once again, even after the wilderness of my own flood-like waiting. 
And in the promise God makes after the flood, and in Noah saying, I trust you even after this, God repeats a line from Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. Creation is still good. God who shows in this story his response to human evil and sin, he still loves his creation. And for some reason, maybe because he loves Phil or Toby or Rachel Cronin, he allows the consumption of bacon and steak after this. <laughs> but he still affirms that humanity is made in the image of God. And he calls for accountability. He promises to never send a flood again. Never again will all life be destroyed by a flood. And then he tells him that the rainbow will be a sign of his promise. In that culture, a vertical bow, like a bow and arrow, was a sign of war. A horizontal bow was a sign of peace. Every time it rained for the years of Noah and his children, if they even thought that another mega flood was coming, they would see that rainbow and be reminded that God's posture towards humanity is peace, is shalom. Even if his posture towards sin and evil is to defeat it. And instead of a flood, instead of a solution that removes a few from a broken world, God enters into a broken world to save it. He sends Jesus who offers living water for every thirsty heart and person who yearns for a better world for, and a better heart than the one that they have. But God, yes, God, he loves, he so loves the world that he sends his son. So he continues his plan of rescue while upholding creation. But that doesn't mean that he thinks the good in creation negates the bad. He's not like, oh, it's not bad. He's like, no, it's bad. But he wants to transform the broken by starting with the human heart. First Peter 3 even speaks of Jesus preaching the gospel to those who perished during the times of Noah. There is a mind-bending, you know, sort of thing. These verses are mysterious, and there's a lot of speculation that can be had, but we, we can understand from it theologically about God's character is that even in his judgment, there is mercy that is offered in ways that we might not even begin to understand. Against possible readings of Noah that are pietistic or puritanical, and in the backdrop of the ever-prevalent exposure of violence that swirls among us, I suggest that the story of Noah has something for us today. Some of us here need the rescue of God. We've been hurt by the spiral of sin and violence, and we need Jesus to speak and break into the places where we are experiencing pain, anguish, betrayal, and despair. And Jesus says, come and receive new life new life, living water from me. Some of us here need the rescue of God as we realize the ways that our own self-centeredness, our brokenness and sin is damaging our relationship with our family, friends, children, parents, neighbors, and with God. And Jesus says, come and be washed clean and live in and with me. Some of us need to embody the preaching of Noah against our embarrassment and discomfort at saying that we are Christians. We need God's help to share his good news of deliverance with those around us. And we need to ask for the Holy Spirit's help in sharing about that good news. And finally, some of you here, and I felt this as I was preparing the sermon, you resonate with the wilderness, the excruciating waiting of the ark over troubled waters. You have been waiting, praying, clinging through heartache and loss. May we pray with you and for you 
that you would know the Lord's holding you, he's rocking you and carrying you. And may the floodwaters recede, and may you know the hope that you wait for. May you know his comfort in that space and his healing and resurrection power beyond. I close with the final lines of a song. Hold on a little more. This is not the end. Hope is in the Lord. Keep your eyes on him. Let us pray. Rescue us, O God, from the pain, sin, and injustice in our lives, from the ways we participate in that brokenness. Help us to share the good news of your rescue and hold us as we wait for the darkness of troubled waters to pass. particularly, Lord, for those that need to know the comfort and strength of your embrace in waiting that has been too long. I pray that they would know the love and strength of your embrace right now as, as we close. Amen.